Did you know that Nika AATC offers self-paced online courses on a growing range of topics aimed at helping you improve health outcomes for people with HIV? These interactive courses can typically be completed in about an hour and cover multidisciplinary topics such as smoking cessation in people with HIV, geriatric assessment and integration and models of care, managing difficult behaviors in HIV care settings, and using Zoom as a virtual workspace. Self-paced online courses are offered on RISE, Nika AATC's online learning platform. Courses are designed for healthcare providers providing patient care for people with HIV, including physicians, physician assistants, nurses, pharmacists, case managers, outreach workers, and other disciplines. To explore online courses for HIV care professionals, navigate to www.nikaatc.org slash rise-courses. That's www.nikaatc.org forward slash R-I-S-E dash C-O-U-R-S-E-S or click the link in the podcast episode description. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Breitman. Today, I'm sitting down with John Farragon to talk about World AIDS Day, commemorated every year on December 1st. This annual event serves as a reminder of the global struggle to end HIV-related stigma, an opportunity to honor those we've lost, and to continue working towards a day when HIV is no longer a public health threat. This year, the theme is Remember and Commit. Welcome again, John. Yeah, thanks, Marianne. I think it's a good topic for this day. So uh, hopefully this will be helpful for everyone. So John, as we head into World AIDS Day, let's start at the very beginning. What were the suspected origins of HIV? Yeah, so this one is always kind of a tough question to answer, right? Because there's, it's hard to find absolute facts sometimes, you know, Um, there's a lot of stuff written about this. But I think the I think the current thought is that where HIV came from was most likely passed um, there's a similar there's a similar virus called SIV, which is which is found in, in monkeys, and it's very very similar to HIV. So the thought is that possibly the most likely the the SIV was transmitted to some to a human, um, and again depending on where you are, there, there may have been um, uh, involvement with people being exposed to uh, in, infected animals with SIV, and then basically that got transmitted to uh, to humans. Um, but but it's hard it's hard to sh- it's hard to know for, for exactly for sure. Uh, but that's that's the kind of the kind of the thought. But but the first cases really that we, that we're worried about most importantly here were were in the in the early 1980s here. But um, but if you remember a lot of those patients that I, that presented in the 80s. Um, likely had HIV for many, many years prior to that, because most people would have progressed, you know, either anywhere from a couple years to 10 years, depending on how how bad your viral load and what your CD4 count was back in the day. In the day. So most likely, even in the United States, we probably were, there were probably cases of HIV infection here in the in the late 70s, um, but we didn't see them manif- manifest until probably you know the early the early 80s before those case reports are actually out. Can you talk a little bit about the first cases of HIV and, you know, initial misconceptions that people might have had about it? Yes. So this is, I think, is really important for us to just kind of remind everybody, especially those who are younger, who may not have actually been around when a lot of this was happening. I mean, I I was born in 73. So 
I remember a lot of this, and this was actually pretty popular in school, like to kind of learn about HIV and to find out what was actually happening. But there was a lot of misconceptions in the very, very beginning about how it was transmitted. In the beginning, most obviously, um, we we knew that persons who were, uh, if you're having a man having sex with men, MSM, we knew that that was that was the main transmission risk. But um, it, it became very clear that that there were other other risks as well. For example, transfusions. Uh, people who were hemophiliacs began to get it. And also heterosexual transmission and even maternal child transmission became became clear that it wasn't just transmitted through MSM. But the first cases in, that were presented in June of uh, of 1981 were were cases of pneumocystic carinian pneumonia pneumonia in uh, in gay men that was published in the MMWR on June 5th, 1981. Um, and also in July of that same year of 1981, there was also a um, a report of Kaposi sarcoma and also PPCP in homosexual men in, in New York and California. So, so clearly by, by the summer of 1990, 1981, we knew that this was, that, that this was definitely happening, happening in, in the gay population. But in, even in early in 1982, the following year, blood transfusions, uh, people, there were, there were some cases of people getting blood transfusion, getting HIV and also perinatal uh, transmission also was identified um, in in late uh in in late 1982 um they reported um 22 uh cases of unexplained um immunodeficiency in, in ois in, in infants and this was uh in december 17th of of, the, of 1982 so really we're very very quickly we kind of realized that this was not just going to be uh a disease where where it was a disease for for men having sex with men um and so i i think i think you know a lot of this became more and more clear um and you know, you know, there were also issues about how it was transmitted, right, Mariana? So people wanted to know, you know, am I at risk for HIV? You know, who's going to get it? How do you get it? Almost very similar to what we dealt with even with COVID, right? Uh, but the the um, uh, in October of 1986, the Surgeon General at the time was C. Everett Coop, and they actually issued this big uh, Surgeon General's report on, on AIDS. And, and the report made it very clear that HIV was not spread to, uh, casually, and you know, so the the concerns about it being concerned through uh, through casual touching or uh, e even kissing, etc. The, the casual spread was not just not 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 there at the time, and, and we we knew that that this, this was not going to be uh, a transmission risk for people. But really, we they needed national nationwide education around this because, it's in particular, early sex education in schools obviously increased increased use of condoms and also voluntary HIV testing for people who are at risk. All the things that we kind of we kind of still still do now, even uh, for, for for HIV prevention. Um, so the other thing too that a lot of people ask is, what about the blood supply? And I I know that's something that we we always think about, but um, the the blood supply was actually not technically screened for HIV one uh, until March of 1985. And they have to remember they had to develop a test for HIV. So once they identified the HIV virus and they were able to develop a test, you know they they were able to kind of go go through this and, and figure it out. But in 1985. Um, and I believe it was March of that year, they actually did develop um, a, a test for HIV that was actually used to screen um, uh, screening antibodies to HIV in, in the blood supply. So really before then, anybody who had hemophilia or had gotten a blood transfusion, blood transfusion could potentially have acquired H HIV from, from that um, from that transmission risk. So that was really kind of the, kind of the big thing. Now HIV 2, which has also been around as well, that that was that begun to be added to the blood screening protocols in 1992. Um, but I, I think there was just a lot of misconceptions in the very, very beginning that people had about how the disease was transmitted. You know, but I think, you know, we, these brochures that, that the, 
you know, even, even the Surgeon General's report, but also understanding AIDS was actually a brochure in 1988 that was sent to all uh, US, all households in the United States. It was 170 million copies sent out to people. Um, you know, and even after that, we started to start to see some guidelines about HIV uh, for patients who do have HIV for, for, for trying to improve mortality, and particularly the PCP prophylaxis guidelines uh, in 1989 were actually, actually established. But all of this kind of like comes together and kind of helps us realize that there are a lot of misconceptions in the very beginning. And for those of you who are who are not there in the very beginning, just know it was a very, very difficult time, not only politically, but also um, even um, even clinically trying to figure out what to do with patients and, and what was the right drugs to use and you know what what were what were we going to do for patients, how we're going to develop clinical trials, all these things all kind of came out of these of these early 80s. Um uh, and even the ACTG, which we talked about in a few minutes. You know, it start was started in 1987, so it took a couple of years to kind of get some of these some of these research groups together to kind of do something to, to prevent uh, to prevent and to also to treat obviously to treat HIV. Um, uh, you know, once you know, but once once we had once we had a lot of the information and we identified the virus, there, there was a lot of work that began quickly in trying to get get treatments out out to people and try to figure out what we could do for them. I think it's also important to mention Ryan White today. So for those who may not know, what is his story and what is the Ryan White Care Act? Yeah, so another great thing for us to talk about. So the the work that we're doing now, even just doing this podcast, is part of some of the Ryan White funding from for the ATCs, right? But the Ryan White Care Act, uh, Ryan White was a young man who acquired HIV. He was actually a hemophiliac, and, and he was mistreated by a lot of people in, in, this, uh, in, in this town um, because they didn't really understand HIV. But um, he was 13 when he was diagnosed with, with AIDS after a blood transfusion that he received uh, in December of 1984. Um, so he was living in Indiana, and the doctors had given him six months to live. Well, come to find out, he actually wound up wound up living, I think it was like six or seven years after that, he passed away. Uh, he died in April of 19, 1990. Um, but when he tried to return to school, he faced a lot of discrimination related to, related to HIV AIDS uh, in his Indiana community. And along with his mother, um, he rallied for his right to attend school. Um, he gained national attention and became really the the, pay, the the face of public education about HIV. Um, and again, he lived five years longer than he expected and died in, in April of 1990. And that was actually one month before the, uh, his high school graduation. And then in August of that year of 1990, the Congress passed the Ryan White uh, Care Act, which is the um, the Ryan White Comprehensive AIDS Resources Emergency Care Act in, in August of 1990. That was a bipartisan legislation. I know Ted Kennedy was involved. I think Warren Hatch as well. Warren Hatch, sorry, was 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 involved. A lot of uh, a lot of bipartisan uh, support for for this for this Care Act. And and what the Ryan White Care Act does is, I think it re- not only remembers Ryan White and his struggle. And in fact, his mom still speaks. Um, she she spoke a few years at one of our conferences. But most importantly, the the, the Ryan White. Uh, Care Act, at least in, in fiscal year 2022, was was funded at 2.23 billion dollars, and and with that, this is what basically there, there are different parts. Part A, um, it basically provides medical and support services to cities that are most severely affected by HIV. So most most major cities get Part A funding, um, certain institutions there at least. Uh, part B uh, is really provides medications to low income people through the AIDS Drug Assistance Program. So many of you may know about ADAP, obviously, right? Part B funds the ADAP program and is also there to improve quality and access to HIV healthcare. Part C is really the um, the outpatient ambulatory health services. So outpatient care for 
um, for patients that are going to clinics, for example, and, need, and, need, and have HIV. And also some of the community-based groups um, is, are also supported through Part C. Part D is medical uh, care for low-income women, infants, and children, and youth with HIV. So that's an important piece of, of, of the Ryan White Care Act. And then obviously the Part F really really is kind of broken into four different pieces. One of them is the, the AETC program, which again, was for, that we're all part of here. Um, both the people at Columbia, but also the Nairobi Med, we have we have Part F funding coming here. Um, this the spins; these are the special projects of national significance. These are de designed to develop innovative models of HIV care um, and, and really to respond to some of the client needs of, of people involved in the Ryan White program. Dental programs for for we have a large dental program, even with the ATCs that that is funded through Part F. And then the Minority AIDS Initiative, which is really helping recipients improve access to uh, to, uh, from, for, for minorities. So these are some things that are, that are just, um, kind of the different parts of, you know, the a, a, B, C, D, and F that are, kind of reflect what, um, the CARE Act does, but, but I think it really comes back to highlighting who Ryan White was and the legacy that he, he created, um, through his, uh, basically through him being discriminated and the challenges that he went through. And as he became a national figure, this funding has continued to go on um, since, um, you know, even, you know, he died in 1990 and, you know, we're looking at 2023 and that funding is still there and it's still funded at very, very, um, you know, at, at high levels throughout, throughout the, um, um, you know, for, for the last, for the last many years, bipartisan uh, support usually for, for all this as well, which I think is really important. So that's kind of the Ryan White story, Mariana. You also mentioned the ACTG a few times. Can you talk a little bit about that and what it is? Yeah, so the ACTG is the um, the AIDS Control Trial Group. is It basically conducts independent research, uh, numerous centers across the the country. Really, a lot of the landmark studies that have looked at have looked at um, uh, have looked at different issues around HIV uh, have come from the ACTG. I was actually just looking at their website recently too, and um, they, they have basically. Basically, um, there's basically six different areas that they're looking at right now for the ACDG. A lot of it is HIV comorbidities and complications. There's um, they have trials that are ongoing with HIV cure. They have a couple of trials actually on COVID-19 and MPOX as well. So MPOX, which we don't we haven't talked about much, but there's some trials going on there. Um, there they have two HIV treatment trials that they're looking at, four for tuberculosis and two for hepatitis. So so the ACTG, while usually involved with just with HIV, they're also looking at other infectious diseases too that that directly are related probably to HIV care as well, and including TB and COVID-19, obviously MPOX and, and tuberculosis, all these things are important pieces of it. But the ACTG is really a crucial piece of uh, some of the landmark studies. In fact, like I mentioned, the one that looked at maternal child transmission, the original study um, was from the ACTG, and, and that was established uh, in, um, uh, in, in the mid to late 1980s uh, as as a group of of researchers across the country that were leading a lot of the research that that we um, that we kind of rely on now or kind of provided the framework for some of the newer studies that we have now um, for us and also think about other research groups that are involved now not necessarily ACTG but from the ACTG kind of idea you know there's been there's been CPCRA there's the uh, HPTN there's all these different networks of researchers that have been established that are really I think kind of offshoots of ACTG in a lot of ways, while not related all the time, but at the same time, really um, having groups of people who can do research together and collaborative research across different institutions, I think is a great way for us to 
has always been, I think, a hallmark of, of HIV care and, and, and HIV, HIV research. So what do we know about the current rates of HIV in the U.S.? And, you know, ultimately, how are we addressing the HIV epidemic? How does the EHE or the Ending the HIV Epidemic Plan play into all of this? Yeah, so I think this is all important for what we do, right, Mariana? So as it, as we kind of wrap up, you know, and kind of talk about some of this, you know, the the, the you know the issue is that you know we we know that we have a lot of work to do with HIV um, HIV prevention and HIV transmission and HIV treatment. You know, I didn't even mention a lot of the meds, but think about where we were many many years ago. We didn't have anything in 1996. We had highly active antiretroviral therapy, and now we have single tablet regimens. Some people back in the day, when I was a student in 96, they'd be on 10, 12, 15 pills a day, and now most people are on single tablet regimens. So to think of where we are transforming HIV into this kind of chronic illness, I think is really an incredible piece. Uh, but we still have a lot to do, and I think. Um, you know, the current rates of HIV, we currently see in about 35,000 new infections. We're trying to get down that, that down to 3,000, so a 90% reduction. So again, a huge, a huge um, undertaking before 2030. We've talked about this before. Uh, but again, I think we can do it if we just continue to use the tools that we have. But think about now, we have these prevention tools that we just didn't have in the 80s and early 90s. And imagine if we had some of these prevention tools for people, I think we probably could have made a huge difference in the disease state. But we can still make a difference now, you know, by, by you know, implementing these tools now, which I think is really an important piece of what, of what we do. Um, but, you know, as it relates to the EHE, you know, making that plan work, you know, and getting people tested, getting people identified and linked into care, rapid start, um, you know, putting people on PrEP, I think, is another big part of what we do. And then obviously responding to these kind of mini epidemics to make sure that that we can actually identify the, the, the patients that are in kind of these clusters of, of HIV. So to make sure that we're linked, getting everybody linked up to care that's involved, that's gotten, that's gotten HIV transmitted to them by another person so that we can identify people living with HIV is all a big part of all of this, this whole EHE plan. But again, still work to do, but I think, you know, we, we continue to fight the fight and do the best we can each and every day to make sure that this all happens. As we begin to wrap up and approach World AIDS Day tomorrow, what else do providers need to know? Yeah, so I think, you know, as you think about World AIDS Day uh, tomorrow, I think uh, many of you are, are doing this work and, and you're involved, and I encourage you to, to kind of keep up the fight. I think sometimes we all get a little bit tired sometimes, but make sure you take time for yourself to make sure that, you know, you're energized for our patients and for, for the work that we do. Sometimes the work is difficult. And I think sometimes the funding is always in question. Where is it coming from? What are we, what are we going to be able to do? Do we have enough HIV providers in the future? All things that we need to think about. But I think at the end of the day, if we always think back of where we were many, many years ago, and even 5, 10, 15 years ago, think about those timelines in HIV care and HIV prevention, and just think about where we are now. It's really in an incredible spot. And for those of us that are getting a little bit older doing this as I am, you know, I, I, I'm always reminded that, <clears throat> you know, where we came from, what we didn't have years ago, the tools that we have now, and how do we apply those tools to the people that are out there that need our help the most. And in particular, I think a lot about the patients that, that are that are still there, that are viremic, that are walking around with HIV, you know, with, with positive viral loads and just don't just don't have access, either don't have access to care or aren't accessing care to a point where they're actually on therapy. There's a lot of options that we have for those patients now that we didn't have years ago. And so I encourage you to all to kind of kind of keep up the good fight and keep doing doing what you're doing and making sure that we're we're providing uh care to these patients that really need our help, I think. And I think we're the we're the ones that are that are able to do it because we're the ones that are that are at the at the uh, at the front lines of, of HIV treatment and prevention. 
John, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about World AIDS Day. To learn more, please visit www.hiv.gov. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AATC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaatc.org. That's www.necaatc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaatc.org. Stay safe, and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.